Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, you're back from the US. How was your week? The beginning of the week was still, I was still in the sunshine, so I felt good. But I'm still, like, I did a couple of walks since I've been back, just because, you know, I didn't want the momentum to stop. Yeah. And how does that feel? It feels good, but I feel I, I feel like my asthma and my allergies have come back a bit, and it just might be because, you know, the change of weather has affected me. Do you think we're both just sun worshippers? I mean, I definitely am. Maybe there's something in there. Maybe it's something to do with vitamin D. Psychologically, the sun makes you smile. Well, for me, it does. Yeah, for me as well. Just waking up on a sunny day makes me feel immediately happier. I was quite lucky. I got back and we had two days of really nice weather. Yeah. So I felt like I brought the sunshine with me. Yeah. Not sure where you've put it now. I know. I've put it in my back pocket now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel okay. I just, I'm waiting to feel terrible. And maybe that's partly to do with the fact that we're just so unsure about when we're going to feel well and when we're not that it's become part of the problem. Yeah, and that's difficult because there's a lot of literature out there saying to get well, you've got to believe that you're going to get well and to live pain-free, you've got to believe that you can be free of pain. And there is scientific evidence to suggest that the, the psychology actually influences the physiology. But it is really difficult because you're basically always primed for the, the next fall. And because those times, for me, the times that I've not been primed, where I've been going, oh, I feel good, I feel good. The fall is horrible when you were not slightly kind of waiting for it? So I, I couch everything in these terms when I'm feeling good. I'm having a good week. Yeah. yeah, no, I feel great this week, but I don't know if it's just, I don't know if I'm better. Because then they say, oh, well done, you've got, you've got better. And I'm like, I don't know if I've got better because it's, this disease is very intermittent and I could be having a good week and next week could be terrible. It's really sad because it makes it almost you can't enjoy feeling good. But you just have to be grateful for those good days, I guess, and take what comes. Yeah. So I got my thing. I feel like I've got my allergies back. Do you think it's like the cold or the jet lag? Well, it could be the jet lag because I'm absolutely not sleeping at the moment. Yeah, it's horrible. And I'm not sleeping during the day, catching up. And then I'm not sleeping at night. So I'm pretty shattered. And I do really think that that lack of sleep exacerbates all of my symptoms. So how was your week? My week was okay. Um, better than last week. It's the it's the headache and the migraine and those things that are that are still really bad. I've been reading a book by uh, someone called Doctor Katie Munro about managing your migraine. It actually explains that it's all part of a cycle. So last week when I had a massive migraine, once you look back at it, you can see like the triggers from the couple of days before of when this migraine is starting to come on. You need to try and learn to read your body when you're experiencing those early warnings. I don't know if that there's anything that you can do to then stop the migraine coming, Mm. but then, and then coming out of the other side. So migraines can last seven days for that cycle, but I'm get some that last seven days. And then it's almost like I have another week hangover from them. of still just horrible headaches that I can't get out of bed. It's a really exhausting migraines, migraines. However you pronounce it. I don't know uh, how you pronounce it. That's the the thing. I'm really, I feel really um, 
slightly stupid that we do a podcast where I have to say it a lot of the time and I don't know how to pronounce it. Well, I'm I'm in the camp of migraine and you're the migraine. So I think if, you, if we just each say it the way that we like to say it. One of us is getting it right for everyone. Exactly. <laughs> we spoke to a neurologist and part of his remit is to deal with migraines yeah dr hadi manji is consultant neurologist at the national hospital for neurology at queen square in london his specialist interest is in infections of the brain and the nervous system which seems to put him particularly well placed to um really be looking deeply into long covid hadi manji was on our list of people we really wanted to speak to after looking at a generalist like dr paul glenn and then starting to look at the general cardiac symptoms that we did with Dr. Alexander Lyon. And now we're looking at the, you know, the neurological. General result. neurological overview. Yeah. And we will go into more detail in, in specific symptoms like migraines or loss of sense of smell or palpitations as we go along. But we just wanted to give everybody a, sen- a general sense of what was going on before we went, we, you know, before we went into more detail. Let's take it right back to basics um, in terms of the neurological impacts of COVID and, and therefore long COVID. What has this virus done to our brains? There was an inkling that SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 could cause neurological problems from the experience that they had in the SARS and MERS pandemics in 2003 and 2013. But the numbers then were very small, sort of nine, 10,000. So we had an inkling. And so when the first cases of COVID-19 were described in Wuhan, there were papers coming out really by about January to say that about 36% of patients in hospital had neurological complications. But what they didn't really make clear was whether this neurological complications they were seeing were due to the virus itself Was it because people had very low oxygen levels or they had low blood pressures or was it due to any of the medications that these very sick people were being being given? And so then it became clearer and we then published our first paper describing our experience of acute COVID. Now, the patients we described were highly selected. There were patients in hospital, but what it provided was was a platform to sort of outline the sort of complications one could see in the brain and nervous system of acute COVID. So we had patients who had strokes, and these were strokes in multiple parts of the brain at the same time, which is unusual. They also had evidence of clotting outside the brain. So they had clots in the lungs, they had clots in the kidneys. And so there was a suggestion that what COVID did was stimulate the whole clotting mechanism in, in the body, not just the brain, but all over. So that was one group of patients. The second group were patients who had inflammation in the brain, what we call encephalitis. This could be because of the virus itself, or it could be because the immune system was hyperstimulated. So again, we saw those complications. And then there was a group of patients who were probably the elderly patients who really presented with what's called encephalopathy. So they were confused, but had normal scans, uh, and they generally got better 
uh, with time without any specific treatments. The last group were patients who had weakness in the arms and legs, which again was called Guillain-Barre syndrome. So these were the sort of acute complications we saw. Um, and as time has gone on, as we've got better at treating acute COVID, we're seeing less and less of those acute complications. But then we're left with a whole group of people who were in hospital, but also those who were not hospitalized, presenting with symptoms that are now called long COVID or post COVID syndrome. And I think the importance of looking at the previous group, the acutely ill patients, is that it may give us clues as to what's going on in this new group of patients with the so-called long COVID symptoms. So I hope that puts that into context uh, as to where we'll discuss now about long COVID, post-COVID type scenarios, really. Uh, can you just, what is the difference between encephalitis and encephalopathy? Because encephalitis yes, so is inflammation. Yes. The one that you were seeing in older patients is not the same yes. thing. So um, with encephalitis, what you see, you get changes on the MRI scan um, and you get abnormalities in the spinal fluid. So there is active evidence of inflammation. In encephalopathy, what you have is just brain dysfunction in a very global sense, but with no damage to the hardware of the nervous systems. So the brain on scans on lumbar puncture is not affected. So one is really evidence of hardware damage in the brain. The other is really software malfunction. That's the way I would describe encephalopathy. I just wanted to draw back because immediately you, it, it, springs to, it springs right to the forefront for me is that you, say, you said that during the acute phase, we saw a lot of blood clotting, which led to damage. Um, and then uh, there were treatments got better and we see less of it. The alarm bells are like, okay, so if people have got mild COVID, should we be treating people pro proactively against clotting? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, the, the evidence is that, you know, the, the people who end up in hospital have more serious disease and are more likely to have a deranged clotting and inflammatory mechanism. So I think the answer to that is no. Um, there is a relationship between the severity of the disease and how much brain um, dysfunction there is. Okay, so the patients we described, and I would emphasize again that these were a selected small group of patients. So in the UK, you've had 4 million people infected. The numbers of patients with these sort of neurological complications is small, okay, one to 2%. So I don't want to give the impression that, you know, brain uh, damage is, is a major complication. It's very much in the small numbers because these were highly selected uh, patients. And now, because when patients come into hospital, they're given dexamethasone uh, and remdesivir, that the numbers that end up on ICU and with very bad disease is, is much, much less. So are we then assuming that the neurological damage in long COVID patients is done by a different mechanism? We don't know yet, but I think that's what we're trying to work out. So if we try and tease out all the various symptoms of long COVID, then I think one is left with the following possible mechanisms. And that's why I think research is so important. Is long COVID because of viral persistence? 
i.e. the virus is persisting in the nervous system? That's one question. The second is that, is there evidence of low-grade inflammation going on in the nervous system? Not just the brain, but in the nerves and muscles as well. Is it because, and as you've pointed this out, is there evidence of clotting abnormalities in a very mild way, again, in the long term? Uh, because is that in a very low-grade fashion causing low-grade damage in a persistent way? And then finally, anyone with uh, muscle symptoms fatigue, you wonder about whether the mitochondria, in a very broad sense, have also been affected. Now, these are all the big unknowns that I think we have to look at. And I think the importance of this is that up to now, post-viral disease has been swept under the carpet. The same with Lyme disease and all that sort of stuff. And now I think with the huge numbers worldwide, with the large group of patients who've got these long COVID symptoms, together I think with a degree of patient activism, you know, I think it is going to bring to the forefront the mechanisms of long COVID, but also these other things which we've sort of, you know, swept under the carpet. And I think that's why it's going to be important to work out the mechanisms, because it's not just COVID, it's all the other post-viral syndromes that I think we may get a, a handle on, and in, then in terms of management and treatment. Well, that would be fantastic if we could make some, some roads in that direction. So as a neurologist, what are mm. the symptoms, if you could summarize them, for, that you're seeing in long COVID patients yeah. just on the neurological side? The, the, I'll, I'll list them really in, in, in descending order in terms of frequency, really. So um, headache. Now, what's interesting is the, the headache in the patients I've seen, a significant number have a flavor of migraine behind that. And by that, I mean that, you know, I, I don't know if either you suffer with migraine, but I do, all right? Yeah, I do as well. And that's been my predominant, not my predominant symptom. The headache has been the predominant symptom, yeah. but the big crashes have been always included the migraine as well, which obviously there is a genetic predisposition to, to yeah. that. Well, I think if you're a migraine sufferer and then you get an illness like this, I think you're more likely to get headaches and migraine. But the importance of identifying migraineous headaches are the potential treatments. And so what it means is that one's got to spend time taking a history of the headache. So you've got to ask what it's like, whether it's unilateral, whether you have associated symptoms, whether you have brain fog with the headache. Because with migraine, I get migraines. I lose words and speech when, I, when I've got a migraine. And you know, I'm doing a clinic with, with migraine and patients are wondering, why is he repeating himself? That's what happens in migraine. But the importance is that there are treatment options. Uh, and so for my migraine patients, they must make sure they drink two liters of water a day. I use as a first line, and it's in the NICE guidelines, I use riboflavin, vitamin B2. There's some evidence for its benefit in migraine prevention. It's also used in perimenstrual symptoms. So I think it's used in, in premenstrual tension and that sort of thing. Because I think to a lot of stuff, even with long COVID, I think there is a hormonal aspect as there is with migraine. Um, We're hearing that more and more, actually, yeah. from, from different specialties. Yeah. So, you know, I think there, there, in women, there is a hormonal aspect to all this. And then you've got treatment options for migraine, which 
are variable. They're all medications, but there are options. And I think that's why it's important to identify. And the other sort of simple things that I always tell patients who have migraine generally, migraine brains like routine, regular sleep, not oversleeping because that'll trigger off a migraine, adequate fluid, two liters of water a day minimum, um, regular meals so you don't get hypoglycemic. You know, all those sort of simple strategies, I think, are helpful in managing the headaches in COVID, but also in migraine. And, you know, I think there is some overlap with other types of headaches. There's one called new persistent daily headache, which this resembles. So people who never suffered headaches then get a persistent headache. And one thing we're trying to look at is to see whether that group of patients, I who haven't had COVID, but also COVID patients, what are the markers? Are they in, are there cytokines elevation, IL-6, all these things? Are they a cytokine boost to all this? Because in that end, we may get a mechanism and then treatment options. So I think headache is something to be taken seriously with a good history, all right? And then um, you can manage it. That's the first thing, all right? The second, I suppose, most common is this so-called brain fog. You know, it's this inability to multitask. And, and these are people, usually young people, who've been very active, doing lots of things, and suddenly they crash. And they can't manage multitasking. They can't manage their high-powered jobs. And again, it is a question of what's going on in the software of the brain, because all these patients generally have normal MRI scans. And again, the mechanism is, is it cytokines? Is it inflammation? And what I tell patients is that, like with fatigue, you have to pace yourself physically, you have to pace yourself cognitively as well. You know, I think otherwise you'll crash if you, if you overdo the brain work as you, with the physical side. We don't know what the mechanism of this brain fog is, but, you know, you've got to look at other things. If you're not sleeping well, your brain won't work properly. So I think it's important to take a good sleep history and manage that. Sometimes as a consequence, there are mood changes, which again can affect your ability to, to think clearly and work clearly. So I think one needs to look at secondary complications of mood and sleep disturbance, because those are manageable and treatable. There are a lot of anecdotal reports about the place of using H1, H2 blockers, you know, low-dose steroids, but it is all anecdotal. And I think we need to wait for what the largest studies show. I think you've spoken to Paul Glynn as well already about these particular type of uh, issues really. So brain fog, and it is one which has rendered people unable to work. And a couple of doctors have, have really crashed, I know. Uh, so it is something which again needs to be managed and, and thought about carefully. The third one, I suppose, would be the palpitations, the dizziness, the postural hypotension, that so-called POTS type scenario, which you'll be familiar with. And again, you know, the question is why, why is the autonomic nervous system affected like this in COVID particularly, whereas it's not a particular feature of other viral infections. You know, there is some work which suggests that it may be that the autonomic system and the brain stem are somehow affected in COVID. Uh, some of the post-mortem studies may suggest there is a, a mechanism for that. But again, it is fairly, uh, that's conjectural really. And then again, you've got to manage the POTS, COVID palpitation type symptoms with adequate fluid, maybe with a low dose of beta blockers uh, and, and that sort of thing, which is what the cardiologists are using. Then you've got fatigue, which again is a major issue for people. And, you know, we see fatigue in a whole range of different neurological disorders from inflammation in MS, in muscle disease, in inflammation of other sorts. So 
Fatigue, the problem with fatigue is you can't measure it. I can't do a scan to say this is your fatigue level or I can't do a blood test. And the way I describe it to patients is that it's the brain's perception of tiredness. So I could make you fatigued by getting to run the marathon or, or write a PhD thesis in 48 hours. Um, but after viruses like COVID, that thermostat in the brain, because in the end, fatigue is all felt in the brain. The thermostat has dropped. It's detecting fatigue at a much lower level than it should normally. And the question is, how do you raise that thermostat back up again so you don't detect it? Uh, and and the, the methods are what we've used in the past. We haven't got anything dramatic. So it's really graded physical exercise programs, maybe cognitive behavioral therapy. The medications that we've used in, for example, MS and things don't really work very well. Amantadine's been used, SSRIs, fluoxetine. These are all that have been tried and tested for fatigue in other neurological disorders, but they're not brilliant, you know, and they'll have side effects. Isn't the graded exercise therapy quite controversial at the moment? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, there is there was stuff on the news quite recently about all that. But to some extent, I think one's got to have some sort of plan for patients. You know, you can't say, well, you know, I'm sorry, we ain't got nothing. Off you go. So I think you've got to, A, work out what the mechanism, what the problem is, and then come up with a plan. You know, I think you've got to support and rehabilitate patients in whatever ways you can. And so that's why I think there is a useful sort of structure to one's therapeutic interventions, even though they may be controversial, really. What else we got? One of the most famous um, neurological symptoms is the loss of taste and smell. Could you explain to our listeners what the mechanism is behind this loss of senses? The important thing about taste and smell is that, you know, it's now become a recognized symptom of COVID. And most patients do recover. That's the important thing. It may take three months, it may take six months. Uh, And the mechanism seems to be that you've got the virus not in the nerve cells of smell or taste. They're actually in the surrounding cells of these nerves. Uh, And so you get inflammation in these nerves. As a secondary consequence, you lose a sense of smell and taste. As that inflammation gradually disappears, that smell and taste gradually comes back. So it's not irreversible damage to the neurons. It's more a bystander effect of the inflammation of the cells surrounding these, particularly the the smell, the olfactory nerves. Are you saying that more in just the initial recovery from the acute phase and it's not so persistent within long COVID sufferers? No, I mean, the patients I've seen, some of them have had very mild COVID symptoms, but the, the prominence of taste and smell has been very big but they gradually have improved now uh, just i saw somebody who had covid six months ago and it's gradually coming back you know so i think the 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 good thing about loss of taste and smell is that gradually does come back it's very debilitating but it doesn't seem to be irreversible which is the the, the usual story with other viruses as well if you lose a taste of smell i mean if you've had a head injury then the chances are much much less that you'll get complete recovery so it is not the nerve is involved by the virus. It's more the inflammatory cells and the supporting cells around the olfactory nerve, which are affected with the virus. And this is a secondary consequence. And I would be optimistic about recovery. And what about things like tinnitus and tingling in hands and feet that are all 
are they somehow nerve damage or I mean I yeah. think they can be some of those can be kind of grouped together yeah no I agree I mean so we have patients who have pins and needles tingling and the ones that we I've seen and investigated and the way we investigate patients is by doing electrical tests what's called nerve conduction studies looking at large fibers small fibers so they do, do all the temperature testing stuff and they tend to be normal so again what we've got is a sort of software malfunction in the peripheral nerves which are in your hands and feet and it may be that the mechanism is similar to the other things we've talked about whether it's the cytokines it's something at a molecular level which is causing malfunction are you seeing now, any indication of that at the moment? Are you seeing this cytokine storm or are you seeing... No, no the cytokine storm is more in the severely ill patients. Okay. What I'm, I wouldn't use that phrase. I think what we're talking about is a low-grade elevation of cytokines uh, just playing above the normal range, just causing some mischief at a, at a much lower level. The cytokine storm is the one that causes the severe encephalitis, the severe brain damage. So... We're not talking about a cytokine storm. I think we're talking about just a low-grade inflammatory type process, which may be contributing to these software malfunction of the brain and peripheral nerves. That, that's the way I would look at it, is to say there's a functional abnormality, but I think it's, it, we haven't determined what it is exactly, and that's why, why we need to look at it. The other things that I think are also part of this whole picture are sleep disturbance and mood changes. Now, I don't think it's necessarily related to having long COVID. I think it may be part and parcel of the whole process that people who've never been depressed before, the mood crashes. So I think it, it is part and parcel of this whole process. Now, obviously, people who've never been ill and have been functioning at a very high level suddenly crash and they can't do what they want to do, they'll get depressed as a secondary consequence. But I get the impression that some people may be getting depression as part of the whole picture. So I have never had depression before. I very clearly get depressive episodes at the same time as I have physical symptoms. So when I have been told, well, you're bound to be depressed, you've been ill for 18 months, I maintain that something physiological happens in my body at the time that I get, I think, what people are terming a relapse. So the, the whole collision of the symptoms has a has a physiological impact on my brain as well. What do you think of that? No, I think that makes sense. That if you have something going on at a molecular level, which is giving you headaches and migraine, giving you fatigue, then there's no reason why that couldn't also affect the, the mood areas, you know, the, the, the mesial temporal areas, the amygdala. That makes sense. I mean... With, with inflammation in the brain, do you think? Not is necessarily. It... It'd be more biochemical changes. I'll give you an example. I've seen patients who have Parkinson's disease. Now, Parkinson's is related to lack of dopamine in the brain. And patients who have good levels of dopamine work very well. They, they move about, they do all that. But when the dopamine levels drop, they freeze, they can't move, and they get profoundly depressed at the same time. So that by chemical deficit gives them a motor deficit. So they freeze, they stiffen up, but their mood crashes. So that's an example of why biochemical changes could be part of this whole picture. So I would feel that the depression aspect is part and parcel. And I think, as an example, migraine patients may develop depression as part of the migraine 
uh, picture because there is a metabolic a biochemical change in the brain and i think that can explain everything i don't think one has to say that it's all because you've got long covid i think it could be part and parcel of the primary brain disorder is that similar and, and to people who have heart problems and their physiological mental responses to anxiety like you get very um, anxious for me again my long covid symptoms are mainly cardiac i end up being very anxious i'm not an anxious person at all you know i know i'm being anxious and i tell myself not to be yeah but i feel like it's a physiological response it is well recognized that say somebody's had a heart attack or even had a an angiogram or whatever you can get a change in the respiratory cycle now why that is i'm not clear about but there is a, a tendency to a degree of hyperventilation or shallow breathing now whether that's primary or secondary i don't know but i think that's probably what you're describing is that sort of disordered breathing the trouble is that once you start thinking about your breathing then you're in real bloody trouble you know because then you think oh god i've got to take a breath in and that just drives the whole anxiety scenario because you've never been ill and then suddenly you get all these complications i think the other thing i would emphasize is that i think what happens is that the brain becomes hypersensitive whereas normally every little twitch every little pain or tingle is uh, ignored it's filtered out but i think when you've been ill for whatever reason the brain becomes hypersensitized and so stuff which was previously being ignored is is registered then increasing some anxiety levels and and that sort of thing so i think brain hypersensitization as a secondary consequence is probably playing a part in 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 what we're seeing really i just want to make clear we're not conflating that with what a lot of long covid patients have heard from the gp where they're not believed about their symptoms no 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 i i so think it's something really different and this is what was told to me by the cardiologist who i saw recently at the cleveland clinic yeah when i said well i have all these palpitations because he was telling me you are physiologically your heart is sound yeah do not worry and i said but what about all this he says your brain you're just so highly attuned to every increase or decrease in beats yeah. yeah. that's adding to your you know anxiety on the situation but i think what it does mean is that you do have to be investigated first and make sure that there is nothing wrong with your heart or your brain or whatever before you come to that conclusion i think it is a question of recognition of symptoms it's listening to the patient doing any tests that are necessary which would be helpful both in terms of excluding other causes uh, but also as a therapeutic reassurance now if i get bad headaches i want a brain scan you know i want to know that my brain is okay and most people would feel like that because it is partly therapeutic doing the test you know what i mean it it helps if i can tell you your brain scan is normal um it is part of the treatment and then we can go on to dealing with your headaches and your brain fog and things unfortunately though the nhs being the service that it is and the thousands of people now that have long covid yeah. you know we all can't have mris and no i agree but i think somewhere along the line somebody it is a question of taking an interest and just i know it's difficult and everyone's stretched and everything but i think the first port of call is to 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 see a patient and you know you can't do this on the phone you can't do this on video okay because you you'll miss all the subtle sort of clues and everything else so it's got to be a face to face at least consultation to to work out what is serious what is not serious or how one can manage and what tests are necessary 
but that's more uh, an issue regarding the, the medical setup and, and, and staffing shortages and everything, all right? In the ideal world, these are the things which I think we would need to take um, seriously. And it is the question, first of all, of taking a history and examining the patient properly, rather than just writing a form for a brain scan, which will be normal, is, is not going to be helpful in the end therapeutically. So you need to work out what the mechanisms are, what the problems are, and then work from there, really. And, and I've been giving lectures on long live the art of clinical neurology. And I've emphasized that, you know, you need to spend time on the history and examination, then you worry about the tests, because quite often the tests will be normal, or quite often it'll give you a red herring that you chase around the dead end, which is completely irrelevant. So I think it is important to listen, take a history, examine a patient, then work out a plan. But it's easier said than done. I accept it, you know. I just wanted to go back to the mitochondria um, because it's something that various people have brought up, the abnormalities to the mitochondria or an effect on the mitochondria. And I would just like an explanation of that in sort of layman's terms. I suppose the first way I would start is the mitochondria are the powerhouses of the individual cells. They, they drive the function of each cell. So that's why they're so important. And as neurologists, we do see mitochondrial disorders, you know, which are genetic disorders. The question, and the trouble is that there hasn't been enough research on the mitochondria in patients with COVID and long COVID, because partly what you need to do is you need to look at the enzymes which are found in muscle. You need to do muscle biopsies right. to look at what's happening with all these enzymes in the mitochondria. Are they malfunctioning? Are the levels down? So I think we haven't got enough information to see how much of a mitochondrial disorder there is. But if you were looking for an explanation for fatigue, then one place you'll be looking for would be the mitochondria and muscles. So many of of these symptoms can be attributed to to all different parts of the body or different functions of the body. So it's hard to um, know where to start looking. Yeah, the problem is that we haven't got the facilities uh, to investigate all patients from all different areas, you know. So if if, say, we had enough money, what would we do? Well, I think what we were doing, we, we have set up a long COVID clinic at Queen Square run by my colleague, Patricia McNamara, mm. um, is that in the ideal world, if we want to look at the, the question of mitochondria, you would um, examine patients, you would do an MRI scan of the muscles, which we can do now, and you would do a muscle biopsy and then look at the mitochondrial um, levels in, in, in the muscle biopsy and see whether there's a deficit there or not. Uh, or was there a deficit in any of the enzymes which could be replaced? For example, coenzyme Q10 is a, is a coenzyme in mitochondria. Now, if that level is found to be reduced, you can take that uh, as a supplement. Yeah, which okay. is something I, I started doing. Yeah, because I think there is some evidence that it, you know, I, I've, I've used it in patients with neurological disorders and fatigue and muscle disorders. Whether it does any good is not entirely clear, but it, it doesn't cause any harm, um, and it may do some uh, give you some benefit. So you know, I think we're in a situation where we haven't got enough information, we haven't got enough money being put into doing the tests that are needed to be done. So what will happen is people will have muscle biopsies ad hoc in different areas, 
and it maybe that they'll come together and, and, and come together with some sort of consensus. Uh, they're, they're time consuming, they're very specialist, only certain labs in the UK can do it. So I think taking coenzyme Q10, if you've got fatigue post-infection is not a bad thing to do. Can we just go back and talk a little bit about uh, the dysautonomia that that you said was not actually present in, in other post-viral conditions or things such as ME? There are a lot of symptoms that are attributed to other causes in long COVID. So the, the palpitations, people have their heart checked and there's nothing wrong. So are there quite a lot of the symptoms? Could all of the long COVID symptoms be attributed to a dysautonomia? No, full stop. There's there's so many different areas of the nervous system involved that I don't think the dysautonomy per se could be explaining everything. Um, what I will say is that, I, I mean, I use that phrase post-viral syndromes and dysautonomia. I have no experience of Lyme disease and dysautonomia at all. So I, I don't know what it is. It, the patients I've seen with Lyme disease, none of them have had this dysautonomia really. It may be that it is a feature, but it's certainly never been a prominent feature as it is now. So no, the answer, I don't think it's all dysautonomia. You know, you can't explain migraine. You can't explain dizziness particularly. Well, sometimes dizziness can be. Um, but the other important thing about dizziness is not always blood pressure. You know, your balance system is, is due to visual inputs. It's due to labyrinthine inputs from your ears. It's from your neck muscles and it's your feet. It's a multi-organized um, uh, system. And if your blood pressure drops, then you'll become dizzy. But after viruses, you can get damage to your balance system, all right, uh, which again is potentially treatable uh, by various maneuvers and exercises. So it is always important if somebody complains of dizziness that you check their labyrinth labyrinthine system, but which can be done very easily in the clinic where you do something called the whole pikes test and you treat it with the Epley maneuver. So, you know, again, dizziness is a sort of symptom which has different causes and you can't just assume it's cardiac. Could I be. think that's the same with se several of the symptoms, isn't it? That they could potentially have varying causes. Yeah, but dizziness particularly um, could be due to labyrinthine problems. Fatigue could be cardiac or neurological or muscle. I agree, yeah. So one thing that's repeated to come out through our conversation is that the fact that we don't have enough information yet, we don't have enough research, we don't have enough resources to do the relevant investigations on the vast quantities of people that have these these symptoms or have this condition. What what do you think should be the priority in terms of studies, trials, research? What would you ask if you could? What would you ask for funding to be put into? Well, I think what I think would be the best way of dealing with this scenario, if there was enough money, is, is to set up multidisciplinary clinics. So you'd have a clinic because COVID and long COVID is a multi-system disorder. And what you need is um, people working and thinking together. So you would have a clinic where you would have a cardiologist, a respiratory physician, a neurologist, as a very basis, working together and then seeing the patients together and doing discussing what so we do have meetings every Friday to discuss patients, but I think we only discuss two or three patients at UCH in this long COVID clinic. But it is a very helpful scenario because then you can see what's happening in the other bits on the heart side, what's happening in the inflammation in the lungs, what's happening in the in the rest. And I think 
in the end, that's the only way to build up a holistic picture of a patient and a holistic treatment plan because that's what's going to be needed. Yeah, very interesting because UCLH is sort of the model or the best thing that we have in terms of a long COVID clinic. It's been the trailblazer and having that multidisciplinary team. But it's really interesting to see you say you need to all be there with or almost with the patient at the same time. Not maybe not physically, but even sort of, you know, to have, you know, so if Melissa, somebody sees somebody in the clinic and they want a neurology opinion for us to be around there to, to discuss it would be very useful. We don't have the time to all go to various clinics. But I think a holistic approach is the best way forward here because then you're treating all aspects. If somebody's seen at Queen Square, the neurology hospital, and you realize that the dizziness is cardiac, then you know it's back to square one again, You know, going to find a cardiologist to see you and stuff. But I think the most important thing is having a group of doctors who are interested, who are interested in what's going on and interested in working out what the mechanism is. And if you've got interested team of specialists, I think that is the first thing you need to do because then you'll, you'll develop the interest, you'll develop the research protocols and you can move forward. But I think there is a lot of interest academically in COVID. It is very fascinating sort of subject and topic, which I think uh, a lot of people have become interested in. You just have to look at the publications, you just have to look at the all these sort of stuff kept churning out all over uh, the world. And look at the amount of time that um, doctors such as yourself and various others that we have spoken to, a, a lot of them are from UCH, who are putting so much time and energy into, into the patients. It's, it's quite remarkable. I think if you're interested, then it becomes easier because you want to find out what's going on with individual patients because everyone is different. Everyone is very interesting. So I think you've got to have an interested group of professionals who can take things forward. And I think at UCH, we're really lucky. I like to ask this question. So if mm. we think that it's a multi-system, multi-injury style disease post-viral, there is not going to be one magic bullet. I think that's probably right, because I think different areas of the body and the nervous system are affected in different ways. There may be different mechanisms for each issue, all right? Um, so I think there won't be a magic bullet for long COVID. I think it may be that when we'll have a combination of treatments, maybe suppressing low-grade inflammation, maybe dealing with mast cell activation, okay? Um, maybe deal with mitochondrial dysfunction. So I think it may be that you'll have multiple treatments to deal with the symptoms which are most um, prevalent or, or, or causing most of a problem. And it is the way of medicine generally. I mean, you're lucky to get a magic bullet for, for one thing, whether it's for, for cancer treatments, whether it's for other things really. So I think it'll be different mechanisms in different parts of the body. So inflammation, mitochondrial maybe, mast cell activation maybe, maybe there'll be evidence of viral persistence. We don't know yet. It may be that the virus triggers off antibodies, again, causing problems. So it is quite astonishing how far we've come in, in 18 months. From December 2019 to where we are now, in terms of vaccinations, in terms of steroids, in terms of remdesivir, you know, it is amazing how much we've done. When you look at, say, you know, the, the AIDS pandemic, because my career started with the AIDS pandemic 1981, and it wasn't until 1997 that they had good treatments for, for patients, 15, 16 years for, for 
a virus which still doesn't have a vaccine. So putting into that context, I think huge progress has been made, but I think there's a long way to go in, in terms of what we do next. And that's why I think research is going to be very important. Yeah, really interesting as well that he is a migraine sufferer himself. He can actually fully empathise with with what people go through in that process. Well, I think the whole long COVID situation is not only patient activists or patient-led research, but a lot of the people who are suffering are medical staff. Yeah. So they're having to, like, the empathy is there. Yeah, and so some of the patient activists are actually the doctors who are handling it. Yeah, and so when you go into a clinic and someone's got long COVID, or like we spoke to Darren Brown last week who's got long COVID and is doing physio, it's a much better experience for the patient because... It's lived experience. It's lived experience. Yeah. And they can go, oh, yeah, you've got this, I've got that. And, and you know, Dr. Manji was like, I've got migraine. So he can relate. It's just, it's just, it's a step that people need, that empathy with what they're going through. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.